Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus uh, chapter 33. And what we're going to be talking about is Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, um, part 1. And this is of God and of, of the Holy Trinity. So just listen to the whole paragraph here. There is but one living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now this is just kind of an interesting side note, and I'm not even sure that it's true. But I heard that at one point during the Westminster Assembly, when they you know, had all these different pastors, preachers, theologians trying to decide what they were going to write. And you come to this paragraph, and you're going to try to write a paragraph that describes the character of God. Think about just how overwhelming that is. And so they were talking, they were debating, they were trying to figure it out, and I think they kind of reached an impasse. And one man said, let's just pause and have a moment for prayer. And he stood up, and basically he addressed God. And as he's addressing God, he lists out all these attributes. And they basically was like, that sounded really good. Let's just adopt that. Uh, and so that's largely what showed up in the confession. Like I said, it's a really good story. I'm not sure it's true. Um, but I think here's what we want to focus on this morning. That very last phrase. Who will by no means clear the guilty? That's what we want to try to focus on and understand. What does that really mean when it says that God will never clear the guilty? And that, that phrase shows up at least at two places in the Bible. You know, the confession has... Um, proof text, so to speak. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7 would be1, and then Nahum chapter 1, uh, verse 2 and 3. We'll look at those later. But, depending on your translation in English, it will come across as, who will by no means clear the guilty? Okay, um, Or sometimes, we'll, we'll look at some of the other ways that it's translated. So, let's start in Exodus chapter 33 and kind of get the context of where this was first spoken by God about Himself. Exodus chapter 33, and before I even start reading in Exodus, let me give a little bit of background before what I'm going to read. I think we'll all be familiar with this. God delivers His people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt, the oppressive uh, place, and He brings them out to Mount Sinai to worship Him. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He's gone so long, the people feel like they've lost connection with God. They get Aaron to build some golden calves, and they start to worship essentially the golden calves. God is angry, Moses is angry, breaks the Ten Commandments, but then Moses goes back up to pray more okay, later, and that's kind of what we're going to pick up after God has expressed His anger over the people's sin. So, Exodus chapter 33, and let's jump in at verse 5. For the Lord God had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now just pause for a second. 
I mean, basically God is saying, Moses, the people of Israel are so stubborn. They're so selfish. Uh, they're so fickle. They keep going back to their sin. They don't honor me. They don't worship me. That if I continue to manifest my presence with them, I'm so holy and just, I'll probably just end up wiping them out. So, Y'all need to basically have a time of fasting and prayer. That's what he's talking about. You know, take off your ornaments, take off your jewelry. In a sense, put on the sackcloth and ashing to express your grieving hearts to seek me while I'm going to decide what I'm going to do about you. Now, now just, just stop and think about that for a second because God here is presented almost like he has a conundrum in his heart. Is it not? It's like, I need some time to think about what I'm going to do. And here's one of the interesting things. Joseph had asked me a question uh, later, and this is a great example of it. Sometimes God is presented to us in Scripture as He's the sovereign God over everything. He does all that He pleases, and He's just writing the story. It's a script. He's ordained all things. And that is an absolute, accurate, true picture of God. And yet also, sometimes God presents Himself as an actor in His own story, and it's almost like we get to know Him in a much more personal way and understand some of the depths of his heart and the different things that he's feeling and thinking. And that's how he's presenting himself here. It's like he's trying to relate to us the tension that he feels. I don't think he actually feels tension, but that's the way he's presenting it to us. Okay, So that he can relate to us. Now keep going. Uh, Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at its tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, the assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So what's going on here is Moses is being presented as kind of the chief prayer. He's the intercessor, okay, going to lead in prayer. God, you remember, if you remember any of your kind of Old Testament Bible stories, what God used to do was manifest His presence as a cloud by day, as fire by night, and it would sit over the people of Israel. But now because He's so grieved, it's like He's moved away, and He's not sitting over the people of Israel anymore. It's like, here's their encampment, and it's like the presence of God is over there. Again, if any of you are married, your, your spouse gets angry at you, and in a sense... They don't run away from you, but they might kind of go in another room and say, I don't want to talk to you right now. And that's the kind of picture. So what does Moses do? He takes the tent of meeting, like the tabernacle, and he takes it to where the presence of God is and sets it up so that he can go out there. He's praying. He's interceding for the people. Basically, God have mercy on the people. And let's see what's going to happen from there. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. 
And he said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. So you see what Moses is saying, God, you called me to lead this people. And if you remember anything about Exodus 3 and 4, the call of Moses, Moses did not want to do it. Right? I mean, he, he, he threw out every excuse in the book. I don't want to do this. And one of the ways that God convinced him to do it was, I'll be with you. I will be with you. I, my presence, I will guide you. So Moses, in a sense, is kind of, guys, this is a great, aggressive, bold way to pray. He's calling God to account on his word. Hey, you made me a promise that if you were going to make me lead up this people, you would go with me. And I don't want to go by myself. I don't think I can do it. I need you. I'm desperate. I want you to go with me. Verse 14, God answers, says, okay, my presence will go with you. And he said to him, it's kind of like he's making sure, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And that's the Old Testament word for grace there. And I know you by name. So he's saying, Because of my relationship with you, Moses, because I love you, because I've you've chosen you, I have so much grace on you, you asked me this bold thing, I'm going to do it. Now look at Moses' response in verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Now I think this is what is happening in Moses' mind at this point. He's saying, at some level, God, I love you. I'm in awe of you. I worship you. At another level, I don't really get you. Because it was just very recently you were saying you couldn't go up with us. That if you went up with us, we were so sinful, you'd kill everybody. And now just because I pray a bold prayer and ask you out of desperation, you say, okay, I will go up with you. I will bless you. It's glorious that you're that gracious, but I don't get it. That's what he's crying out. Show me your glory. How can you be this good? Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, there's so much here. We're not going to have time to talk about all of it. But let me just point out a couple of things that for us I think are super important. Moses said, I want to see your glory. And he did get to see some of the glory of God. But we aren't told anything 
about what it was that Moses saw with his physical eyes. What are we told? We're told what he heard. And even before Moses came up on the mountain, notice what God said. He said, bring something to write on. And it's just like, you're going to need to take notes. This is important. You're going to want to remember this. Now, what's important for us, because I think sometimes we read the Old Testament and we hear stories of God manifesting His glory, you know, a cloud by day, the fire by night. It's like, I'd like to have some kind of supernatural experience of seeing the manifested presence of God. And I would. If God's still giving those out, sign me up. I'd like to have one. But the real way, the best way on this earth to see God's glory is in His Word. That's what was remembered. God proclaiming His name, His character, His attribute. That's what's memorable to Moses and to us. Now, notice when God kind of is declaring His name. The emphasis by far is on His goodness, His graciousness, His kindness. He's a forgiving God. But then at the end, it's like, I don't clear the guilty. I won't let the guilty get off unpunished. So there's the context of this phrase. All right? Now, I want us to talk about the controversy. Okay? Because there's at least two clear options. You, you have good, solid, reformed theologians that would disagree about what this phrase means. And this is a very key text. Okay? This, this text gets quoted many times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. When people would be praying to God, they would call on His name and they would remember kind of this self-revelation of God. But even here, there's a controversy. Two clear options. The first one is, would say this, and again, we're just focusing on that phrase, who will by no means clear the guilty. The first kind of option of what that means, and this would be the majority view, is that it means God is going to have wrath on the reprobate. God is going to have wrath on the non-elect. God is going to fully and severely punish people that never repent. That would be what most people believe. Um, if you want to, for just a second, flip over in your Bibles to Nahum, if you can find it. It's one of those little tiny minor prophets that's easy to just flip past. So you don't have to flip there if you don't want to. But remember, this was God speaking through the prophet about the wrath he was about to bring on Nineveh, this pagan nation. They repented maybe a hundred years ago with Jonah, but now they're back into their sin and God's going to bring wrath. Um, Let's start with Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Okay? This would be the majority view. Here's Matthew Henry commenting on it. Some read it, talking about this phrase, as to express a mitigation of wrath. Even when He does punish... When he empties, he will not make quite desolate. So there's kind of a third option I'm not going to talk about. But he's saying what, part, what he thinks is even when God's kind of gracious, you know, he can even be gracious to his enemies. His wrath isn't full. Some people would interpret that way. But that's not what Matthew Henry thinks. Okay? As we read it, we must expound it that he will by no means connive at the guilty as if he took no notice of their sin. Or he will not clear the impenitent, impenitent, guilty that go on still in their trespasses. He will not clear the guilty with some satisfaction to his justice and necessary vindications of the honor of his government. So most people would say, what does this phrase mean? It's declaring God's gracious, God's gracious, God's gracious really to his people and all those who aren't his people. 
He's just. But that's not everybody believes. Okay, you have some that would say, no, 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 here's what it means. Even when God forgives his people, there's still going to be some discipline. There's still going to be some chastisement. That even when we get full grace from God, full mercy, there's still going to be some type of discipline for our sin. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. You seemingly get the phrase used in that way. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. God speaking to his people. Remember, they have been in captivity. God's trying to encourage them. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. So think about that. God's saying, the, the nations that have oppressed you, Israel, and taken you into captivity, I'm going to totally wipe them out. But of you, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So here, it's a very similar phrase. It's not the exact same phrase. It's a very similar phrase, and God's saying, I'm not going to totally wipe you guys out. I'm going to wipe out the people that oppressed you, but for y'all, even though I'm showing mercy, there will be some discipline that you get. Here's John Calvin speaking about this view. He will not always suffer, even the pardoned sinner, to escape with entire impunity. He will mingle so much of the penalty in his dealings to events that his clemency is not to be presumed upon. Let me give you a story. When my children were younger, um, we were going through a thing with them. You know, we tended to spank them when they disobeyed, but we kind of went through this little season where we were trying to find a creative way to teach them about the grace of God. So if they did something bad, we'd kind of take them to their room like they were going to get a spanking. We'd have the whole talk. You know, you, know, you disobeyed. I'm your authority. You have to obey. And because you disobeyed, you deserve a spanking. But then we just say, you know what? Even though you deserve a spanking, I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm not going to spank you. You deserve a spanking. I'm not going to spank you. I have mercy. I forgive you. How well did that work? I don't know. Because one night we were eating at Jim and Nick's restaurant down here on 280. Probably a lot of y'all been there. And they have these kind of booths at Jim and Nick's that are kind of elevated. I don't know why. And, and my kids, for whatever reason, they thought those booths were cool. We would sit in those booths. They would kind of act the fool. And so I remember one time we were there having dinner. It was like a Friday night. It was very busy. And my kids were doing this thing where they would kind of sit in the booth normally. And then they would kind of make their body kind of go straight. So they would just slide out and hit the floor. And they would thought it was hilarious. And so I was like, hey, guys, y'all got to quit doing that. Like waitresses are walking by. And like, so I was like, do not do it again, you know. And uh, they do it again. So I said, hey, you do it again, I'm taking you to the bathroom and spanking you. And, and my daughter listened. And one of my sons, literally, he looked right across the table, right in my eyes, and he said, Dad, I know you're just going to have mercy on me. And he straightened up and, like, went right down on the floor. And uh, I was like, not, time, not this time, buddy. No mercy tonight, you know. We're going to the bathroom. And, uh, but, guys, there's something in the human heart when we keep getting mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy. I mean, talk about the battle of flesh and spirit. Right? When I'm spirit-filled, I'm humbled by God's mercy and motivated to obey. But when my flesh starts to creep back in, I'm motivated to disobey by mercy. And so what some people interpret this is in, in, as in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, is this. Because God so loves His people that even when He's just pouring out grace and mercy on them, He'll still bring some discipline and chastisement into their lives to keep them on the straight and narrow. Now, there's the controversy. 
And there could be other opinions, but those seem to be the two main ones. Both of those things are true. <laughs> but it can't be that Exodus 34 said, it doesn't seem that it would be teaching both. Which is it? Now, um, the conclusion of the matter. Let's flip over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. As best as I can understand, after studying this fairly extensively, I think it's best to see the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 2, part 1, and Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, is talking about the full display of God's character. He's fully gracious, but He's also fully just. So I would go with more option 1, that it's saying, yes, God is so rich in mercy and grace and love and kindness and gentleness, and yet He is also a God of justice, righteousness, holiness, and wrath. But it could be the one legitimately. And this is one of the times when you're studying the Bible, it can be very frustrating for us because it's like, wow, this is not some random obscure text. This is like a high point of God's revelation in the Old Testament. And even here, we're not 100% clear what it means. This can drive us crazy in studying the Bible. This is why we need things like the confession to help us understand the Bible. But also, this is an important thing to remember. There is no primary doctrine. There's no doctrine... It's necessary to believe for salvation that's built just off of one text. You understand what I mean? That, that, that the most important things in the Bible for us to know and understand, multiple texts speak to the same thing. So it's not like I've just got this proof text that, that my faith is hanging on this one little verse that what if I'm interpreting wrong? All the important things we believe are based on multiple text. Okay. So what do you do, though, when you come across something like this? You pray, you think, you discuss, you read, you study, you, you buy 20 commentaries, you take a seminary class, you know, that maybe is helpful, all right? But here, here's, here's the point, the bigger point that I want us to understand. In some sense, guys, this is taking us into the heart of God. Because there is something mysterious about God. Because this is the tension that for us... It drives the entire Old Testament. That God continually reveals Himself as a holy, just God. And there are times where you see that, like the flood, where God got so sick of mankind, He literally killed everybody on planet Earth except for eight people. That says a lot about His wrath. Or in my 15-year-old daughter's eyes, I think I shared this a couple weeks ago, it's like, Lot's wife looked back one time, instantly did. That makes us think of wrath. But then there are other times that God seems shockingly, scandalously gracious. Right? Again, in my daughter's eyes, that King David does a lot of bad stuff and he still gets the right part of the Bible. Nineveh. Think about Nineveh with Jonah. They were, the, they were a wicked, evil, Nazi-like pagan culture and they just have some form of repentance and God says okay I won't, I won't wipe you out and that's why Jonah was mad because Jonah's like I knew that's what you're going to do I knew how gracious you were I wanted you to kill him and you didn't do it so Romans 3 might be the place in the Bible that brings this together the tension and explains it the most clearly Although I'm not sure we're going to fully ever understand how the tension comes together on this planet. Okay, so Romans chapter 3, and let's start in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
God's character is matchless in its perfection. And we're supposed to live up to that, and we don't. We fall short of that every day. What hope do we have then? Verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Christ, His atoning death on the cross, He bought us back from the slave market of sin, and we can be justified, which means to be declared righteous, declared innocent. Now, look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, by His blood to be received by faith. Now, this is very interesting. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. I don't know if y'all remember, based on your age, how old you were when the movie, I think it was roughly 20 years ago, The Passion of the Christ came out by Mel Gibson. And uh, you know, John Piper wrote a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Had to Die. So when you ask somebody, you know, why did Jesus die on the cross? There are actually multiple different right answers. I think I did this in seminary class last semester with some of y'all. It's like came up with a lot of different answers. But here's an answer that doesn't come to the forefront of our mind very often. But it's a very biblically centric reason. And I mean, some people would say what we're reading right now, Romans 3, is the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. It's where the tension is brought together. Because for your average kind of postmodern, Western liberal person, when they kind of read the Bible, here's what they really struggle with. Here's how the tension falls on them. How could a loving God ever do what? Blank. Fill in the blank. How could a loving God ever what? Send somebody to hell forever. Listen, even a lot of really good, godly, mature Christians wrestle with that, right? I think if you have an emotional bone in your body, you wrestle with it a little bit. But, but there have been super insightful, godly, mature theologians who late in life have kind of said, I don't know if I can hang on to this whole doctrine of eternal damnation. Maybe annihilation. Maybe that's what it is. And, and, and most of them are honest enough to admit, I didn't get here through exegesis and Bible study. I got here from just emotionally being overwhelmed with the thought of eternal torment. I I get that. That's not how your average self-righteous Pharisee looked at the problem. They looked at the tension that drove the Old Testament from the other side. And that certainly Paul. Listen, Paul, as a mature Christian, could look back on his pre-Christian life And basically, remember in Philippians 3 and say, hey, according to the external law standard, I was flawless. I was doing all the right stuff externally. I was the best Jew around. So when they read this kind of stuff in the Old Testament, that God saved people like David, what they wrestled with is, how can a holy and just God ever forgive an adulterer, a murderer, much less a whole pagan city? Like Nineveh. And this makes all the sense of the second part of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. See, for thousands of years, as God is looking on sinners and saying, I'm not going to punish you for that sin, 
I'm not going to punish you for that sin. I'm not going to punish you for that sin. And some people say, well, it was because of the blood of the bulls and the goats. Well, two things. There were times before blood of bulls and goats that God said, not going to punish you. Before the Mosaic laws developed, number one. Right? And you go read Hebrews, it says, yeah, yeah, the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive people. It points forward to something towards the coming true Lamb of God. When Christ hung on the cross, as much as it was a declaration of God's love for His people, it was just as much a declaration of God's love of His own holiness and righteous character. Yes, I'm gracious, but I never let the guilty get off. Verse 26. Paul essentially repeats the same thing because he realizes what a huge point this is. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What did the cross do? It established the fact that God is 100% just and 100% gracious all at the same time. It solves the mystery. It solves the tension. Because his wrath fell on Christ, he can legally, justly, have grace on his people. I mean, think about 1 John 1 9, right? It's the verse most of us are familiar with. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us all in righteousness. It's just now for God to forgive his people of their sins because the wrath has already fallen on Christ and he's not going to punish two people for the same sin. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton Presbyterian, makes the point pardon is the remission of punishment. Well, you did it but I'm just going to pardon you. I'm just going to let you off. I'm not going to punish you. Justification is a declaration no ground for punishment exists anymore. Right? Imagine if you got charged of a crime that you didn't commit and, and there was a trial. What do you want? You don't want just a pardon. Well, we forgive you. We're going to let you off. I mean, that, that's, that's better than being found guilty. But what you really want, I want to be vindicated. I want to be justified. I want the court to say he didn't do anything wrong. This is a mistrial. It should have never happened. Right? That's what can happen to us in Christ. I mean, justified means you are actually holy and righteous. Think about this. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ have to live 33 years of full human adult life? Because 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My sin record onto Christ, His righteousness record onto me. When God looks at me, He doesn't just see innocent neutrality. He sees, in the cosmic courtroom of the universe, 33 years of sinless, perfect righteousness. Okay. Tim Keller says, you know, the way that God satisfied His justice and His love was full. It wasn't a halfway compromise. There's one commentator, I love this, he said, pardon means you're free, you're free to go. Okay? Justification means you're free to come. Pardon means you're guilty, but I'm going to let you off, but you better get out of here, right? One of those things, I don't ever want to see your face in my city again. And guys, let's just pause for a second, because I think sometimes, subconsciously, psychologically, that's how we really feel with Father God. I know I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, I've grown up hearing about Jesus dying on the cross. So I believe that he's let me off and I'm not going to have to go to hell when I die. But I still mainly think God is kind of angry and disgusted with me. 
He's not going to burn me in hell. But it's kind of like, get out of my sight. It's not right. Justified means you're free to come. You're free to be best friends with the judge. Because you're as righteous as he is. Legally. It's real. Jesus was a wrath-removing sacrifice. All right, listen to this quote by Keller. This is great. The more God vented His holiness on Jesus, the more He was venting His love for us. On the cross, the holiness and love of God, otherwise intention, right? I mean, we felt that when we started this whole thing in Exodus 33. It's like you can see it, feel it in the heart of God. On the cross, the holiness and love of God, otherwise intention, were in complete, brilliant cooperation. The more His holiness expressed itself, the more His love was satisfied. The more His love expressed itself, the more His holiness was satisfied. Now, John Bunyan, probably one of the greatest Christian writers of all time, I think for a long time it may still be the case that Pilgrim's Progress was the best-selling book of all time other than the Bible. But he, he wrote another book. It's really short. It's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And John Bunyan, for maybe four or so years, after he became a Christian, really struggled with depression and doubting his salvation. And it's a, it's a short, easy book. might be great for you to read. But he's got a point in there when he's kind of having the breakthrough. And he says this, God said to me, Sinner, you think that because of your sins and weaknesses, I cannot save your soul. But look, my son Jesus is sitting beside me. And I look at him, not at you. And I will deal with you based on how pleased I am with him. I mean, that's the gospel of justification by faith alone. Martin Luther, if you read his commentary on Galatians, I think it's where he's talking about chapter 3, verse 20. He says, this truth must be beaten into our heads. And we basically have to find ways to beat it into other people's heads and others daily. Now, why is that? At least three reasons. One, because when you read the Bible, you're, even in the New Testament, you're getting all these expressions of the holiness of God. Right? I mean, even the question Mac had this morning, if you don't love me more than you love everybody on planet Earth that you know, you can't even be my disciple. That's a radical kind of devotion. He's demanding, and he has every right to demand. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if any of us are honest, we're like, I don't know that I've ever done that. I fall short every single day, even on my best day filled with the Holy Spirit. So that can kind of set us up for thinking, can he really be legally pleased with me? The second thing, my ongoing sin, brings doubts, brings fog, brings confusion. And then, if Satan can do one thing, he wants to make us feel condemned. He wants to make us feel overwhelmed with shame if you are the Son of God. Are you sure? You don't look like a Son of God to me. He's always trying to sow seeds of doubt. So we have to be fighting it. Now, why is there constant temptation in our heart, and we'll be done with this, to keep running back to trying to say, I feel like I need to just have really good performance to add something to it. I need to have some white-knuckling effort to be the best Christian I can be, not because I'm, I'm resting in Christ alone and I'm so free and overflowing with joy that I just want to obey. That's good motivation. But when it's like, 
I feel shaky. I feel fragile in my faith. I feel distant from God. So I feel like I need to perform to kind of add to the Christ. Why is that? We, we have a low view of the cross. We have a low view of Christ. We have a low view of the resurrection. So I'm going to give us one more little whiteboard illustration, and, and then we'll be done with this. Some of y'all have seen this because I think maybe I did it last semester if you were in the class. Um, but I don't think I've done it in this class yet. So you first become a Christian. This is your view of your sinfulness. So I'll do a stick person who's a very sinful stick person. This is the view of where your sinfulness in life is when you first become a Christian. And here is going to be God, the circle. Uh, that's your view of God's holiness when you first become a Christian. So your view of Jesus is like this. He had to bridge that gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness. So you love Him, you worship Him, you're thankful. What's supposed to be happening in the Christian life is the more that you grow, the more that you mature, the more that you're becoming attuned to reality, the more you're really understanding the way the world really works, which is going to have at least a twofold effect. One, you're going to understand, oh my goodness, I'm so much more sinful than I ever dared think. Again, doing college ministry, working with fraternity guys, I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with somebody they are like, I think my only real sins are I smoke weed and I sleep around. If I could just quit sleeping around and smoking weed, I think I'd be perfect. I mean, I don't think there's really any other sins in my life. Then maybe they come to Christ, they quit smoking weed, they quit smoke, sleeping around, and they're like, wait a second, I'm starting to see so much more sin in my life. The pride, the arrogance, the selfishness, the laziness, the lying, the cheating, right? You get a deeper view of your sinfulness. Even though practically you might be getting more holy, your understanding, your feel of your sinfulness is worse. And then what happens to your view of God? It goes up. I thought God was holy, but I had no idea how transcendent, how different, how other than, how unique, how pure, how inaccessible He is apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So as your view of your sinfulness grows and as your view of the holiness of God grows, what necessarily must grow is your view of and your appreciation of Christ and all that He's done for you on the cross which ought to humble us out of any shred of self-righteousness and pride. And in the exact same instant, it ought to lift our spirits out of any kind of inferiority and shame. It's mutual. But I wish, I wish that you could come to a great Bible study, a great seminary class, have a great quiet time, a great worship service, a great retreat, whatever. And it's like, dude, I just got this. I heard a great sermon and it hit me and I'm fixed. But the reality is you can hear the best sermon of your life and maybe it'll last you a week or two and you'll start slipping back into old ways of thinking, which is why on a daily, regular basis, we have to be reading, studying, praying, meditating, worshiping to keep this view in place so that we don't slip back into our own sin, our own self-righteousness. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are a mess. We sense tension in our own heart. Lord, there, there's part of us as believers that really loves you, that really appreciates you, that really wants to worship you, that really wants to obey. And Lord, there's a part of us with our remaining sin 
that still loves ourselves in a weird, selfish, perverted way, and we want to get all the gusto we can from sin, and we're tempted to go back to our old ways. So we just confess that, that weakness and that tension before you, and we pray that the truths that we know in our minds about your goodness, your glory, your holiness, your graciousness, your tenderness, the gift of Christ, the gift of justification, that they would be deeper in our hearts, a bigger, stronger, better foundation, but also more aflame, more alive, more awake, more real, more beautiful, more powerful, and they would really have a transforming effect on us, Lord. We know that in your own heart, in a sense, there is no tension. You understand all things perfectly. But, but we're thankful, Father. We're thankful, Lord Jesus. We're thankful, Holy Spirit, that you are perfect in holiness and perfect in love. And we get to be the beneficiaries of your goodness and glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.